Amen. Good morning. You know, we'll only see those mercies morning by morning if we're looking for them. They're there. Amen. Well, as we are doing a series on Christian disciplines, we are talked about prayer. We looked at the Lord's Prayer, what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Now we're going to begin a little series on the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. God's Word. Why it's important. Um, and all of that good stuff. Um, I would ask you to stand with me as we turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Would you stand with me as I would pray and that we would read a verse and see what God says to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Your word tells us that you are faithful even if we are faithless, for you cannot deny yourself. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have revealed yourself in these last days through your Son, Jesus Christ, which is the Word of God. And so as we come to you, O Jesus, today, we ask through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would give us insight and understanding into your Word, into who you are, and how precious this book is. And how wonderful this book is. And how this book indeed enlightens the eyes. Makes the simple wise. And so Lord we ask for your wisdom this day. Through the hearing of your word. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen and amen. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Bible, as you know, consists of 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written over a period of 1,500 years. The Bible... has been sold, it's the number one selling book of all time, an estimated 5 to 7 billion copies, according to the Guinness World Record. Sadly, if you were to look at the bestseller list today, the Bible is not even on it. Who's on it? Well, Harry Potter makes it, right? How often are we more excited about a book like a Harry Potter, or to go see the Harry Potter series, or Star Wars, or whatever, than we are of the living Word of God. So the question we want to ask today, as we look at God's Word, as we look at the doctrine of the Word of God, we'll ask ourselves those fundamental questions uh, about where did we get it from? Do you ever wonder, where did we get the Bible from? Who put the books in there? Who, who gave them the authority to put whatever books they want in there? Um, why are some books in there? Why are some books not in there? We'll explore those questions. If I were to ask the question, who wrote the Scriptures? If you've been in church in any amount of time, you'll say, God wrote the Holy Scriptures. Be a very correct answer. The Bible tells us this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may complete, equipped for every good work. Peter, in his writing, tells us this. 
in 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy of that word of the Lord, a speaking of God, was ever produced by the will of man. Boy, that is so important to understand. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's two things in there we need to understand, and maybe we know this. This might be old to us, but it's good to be reminded. Timothy tells us, Paul telling Timothy says, Scripture is breathed out by God. Theonupstus, inspired by God. God breathed. Peter says they were carried along, the word Pharaoh, to guide, to direct, or to lead means to so, to so influence others as to cause them to follow a recommended course of action. So what are we really talking about here? How did we get the Scriptures? God gave the Scriptures. God dictated the words of the Bible from the Old and the New Testament. But He used men. He used human beings. He used vessels in it, fallen vessels, imperfect vessels. So how can we say that this is the Word of God, the perfect Word of God? We really need to understand, and, and, and it's a distinction that some may say, oh, you know, really? But I think it's a very important distinction. We talked about God breathed out and men driven along. We're talking here about expiration to inspiration. The correct technical term, the correct real term of God breathed is that God God expired. God breathed out, right? That's the technical term to breathe out. We'll ask Alvin, our resident uh, physician over here, or or Franz, and they'll tell you that to expiate, to breathe out. God breathed out, and men were inspired and breathed in inspiration what God had wrote or told them through the Holy Spirit, so God gave words. God gave, it's, you know, it, it's a word play. It's an understanding of saying that God moved men through the Holy Spirit to write the very words of God. God's words. It's the word or the logos, perhaps you've heard that, the logos of God to man through the leading of the Holy Spirit to men whom God had appointed to produce the scriptures, to produce the Bible of which we have. And because they are inspired by God, given by God, there's truths about that. If God is perfect, and God is perfect, God is holy, and everything that God is, then if God breathed out words, gave words to men, we can be sure that there was nothing lost in translation. I tell you a story, I tell you to pass on to so-and-so, tell somebody, right? and what happens, right? We know the story, the monkey uh, telephone thing, right? You know, the monkey is red, and by the time it gets there, the giraffe has uh, uh, red spots. Like, whoa, how did that happen? Um, nothing was lost in translation. When God gave his word to the holy prophets and to the apostles and to the men who wrote scripture, nothing was lost in translation, And because God spoke, and because God spoke, we know with absolute certainty that the Scriptures are infallible. Infallible. What does that mean? Here's the definition. 
Scripture is incapable of teaching error. The writers of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only did not err, they could not err when writing Scripture. In other words, there was no way they could make a mistake. They couldn't mishear God. They couldn't write the wrong word. They wrote exactly what God inspired them to write. And because it's infallible, solid rule of God, the scriptures are also inerrant. Inerrant. Inerrancy is a natural outflow of infallibility. Since the authors could not err when writing scripture, the Bible contains no, very, listen to this, no affirmations of anything that is contrary to fact. Contains no affirmations of anything that is contrary to fact. Understand that, loved ones, when it comes to the issues of marriage and gender. God does not give any affirmations of things that are contrary to fact. A man and a woman, male and female. Bottom line. Not popular. But it's true because of the source of which it comes from. God himself. Inerrancy, contrary to fact, is a quality of the original text of the Bible. Translations may err. You hear the argument, oh, the Bible's full of errors. The Bible's full of errors. No and yes. There's probably grammatical errors. Over time, people not quite the right word, but got the point across. There's maybe grammatical, but there's not truth errors. The original manuscripts penned by the apostles and the prophets have nothing in error of them. And think about it. Even if there were grammatical errors and all of those things that can come into play when humans put their hands into it over time, still, this is the only book from from the prophets till now, that is cohesive throughout time. It's the only book that that stands there. That alone sets it apart from all other books. That no matter how many translations you have, it's still the same cohesive story. It has not changed in its story and of its pointing. Unless, of course, man, and they have gone and they played with the words. They've changed the words on purpose. There are certain translations of which you should not read. Whenever, uh, 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 the, the, uh, the New World Translation is not a translation that you should read as a believer in Christ Jesus. Why? Because that belongs to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And what they say about Christ is contrary to fact. Because the word of the Lord is inspired... It's infallible, it's inerrant. There's also something else that is true about the word of the Lord. That it is the only book, the only book that will endure forever. The scriptures will endure forever. Why? Because Christ 
is alive forevermore. Peter, quoting the prophet Isaiah, says this, But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Because the Bible, the Scriptures, is inspired, infallible, inerrant, endures forever, there's another truth that we need to know about Scripture. That Scripture is its own interpreter. Scripture is its own interpreter. This is such an important point to understand. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, of which you've been doing in Sunday school, says this, and take these words to heart, believe these words, trust these words of the confession. It says the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture. Right? Because we read something, we'll want to know. How many of you have been in an English lit class and are telling you, well, we want to understand what Shakespeare means by that? I remember I had one test, and, 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 and the question was, well, what, what does this text mean to you? It was something about Shakespeare or something. I forget. And I wrote down what it meant to me, and the teacher told me I was wrong. I said, what are you talking about? How am I wrong? You asked what it meant to me. So therefore, I ha- it's only going to be a right answer. Right? It can only be a right answer. It can't be what you think it should be. It's what I think it should be. The thing about Scripture, it's never what I think it should be. It is what it is. The text explains it. So if you have a, a verse and you say, well, I, I, I don't want to understand what God means by this. It is going to be, for, the answer is found out in another part of Scripture. Or maybe a few other parts of Scripture. That's what we're getting at. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one. In other words, there's not many Scriptures. There's one Scripture. 66 books. One Scripture. It must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So we do not hear at Bible Baptist Church, it is not the practice of anybody who preaches here, to what is to do is to proof text. What's proof texting? It's taking one verse and building an entire thing upon it. Taking one verse out of context to prove your argument. We don't do that. We don't approach the scripture and say, well, I think it says. Well, not to be rude or nothing, Who cares what you think it says? Who cares what I think it says? What does God say it says? What God says is what matters. And that is lost in many churches today. They want to take and say, well, God doesn't say this. Well, it changes and it's progressive and it's no, it's not. The word of the Lord endures forever. It is unchanging in its meaning it is universal throughout all time. It was just as true for Abra- it was just as true for Adam who received the word of the Lord verbally. It's just as true for Isaiah and Moses and all the men. It's just as true in the written form for us today. It has not changed. There is no shadow of change within God. God's word does not change. Times change, but God does not, and His word does not. 
So if we were to define the Bible, if we were to put a definition on it, how would we define it? Uh, uh, there's a great book by uh, Gregory Lanier. It's called The Christian's Pocket Guide to How We Got the Bible. A really good book, easy to read. He, he puts this definition, which I like. Scripture. The inspired deposit of writings received as divinely authoritative for the covenant community. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about God's word and God's revelation. And I said that God's word is not for everybody. Everybody's going to be held to the standard of God's word, yes. But God's word is given to a specific people. God's people. The covenant community. This is our book. This is what God has given to us. Loved ones, I can tell you and I can assure you that you have been giving nothing more valuable in your life than God's Word. I don't care if somebody left you $10 billion. It is not as valuable as God's Word. More to be desired than gold, even fine gold, the psalmist tells us. Would it be nice to have $10 billion? All my problems would be gone. No, they would just begin. They would just, I would end some problems and begin a whole new set of problems. But whatever issues I face, God's Word speaks to. And God's Word gives me direction in. So the question is, how did we get the books of the Bible? How did we get these 39 and these 27 to make the Old and the New Testament? Where did they come from? Throughout history... It would seem that men, church fathers as we would call them, sat in councils and conferences and and said, well, we think this and we think that. It's what's called the canon. Canon means rule or standard. How did we get our Bible? Well, I'm not going to go into the academics of it all. And, you know, you you can get uh, Gregory Lanier's book or you can look on uh, one of my old professors, Michael Kruger, on a a website called Canon Fodder, where he talks about all of this. And Michael Kruger, who was just an expert on this, tells us that uh, really, ultimately, it wasn't a bunch of councils. The scriptures prove themselves out. That as men read scriptures, as scripture was read in the church, and there were many books within the church, uh, you know, the Catholic Church adds the Apocrypha, as those books were even read within the church. In God's true church, God's Christian church, as scripture were read, books were weeded out. They said, you know what, This this just doesn't fit. This doesn't attest as God's word. The words that we have here are, he, he, uh, Michael Kruger puts it this way. It was not the result of a power play brokered by rich cultural elites in some smoke-filled room. It was the result of many years of God's people reading, using, and responding to these books. In the end, we can certainly acknowledge that humans played a role in the canonical process. But not the role that is commonly attributed to them. Humans did not determine the canon. They responded to it. In this sense, we can say that the canon really chose itself. In other words, 
God's Word made itself known. It stood out above all other words. And God's words do stand out above human words. God's word is far more powerful than human words. Are words powerful? Are human words powerful? Oh, yeah. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. You hear me say, yeah, guess what? You can think back in your life of names that you were called, and it still hurts. Human words have power, but God's word, God's words have resurrection power. Holy Spirit power. They stand above all other words. They are known as God's word. He makes himself known. Gregory Lanier goes on in his book and he says this. How scripture defines itself. Because when we refer to the scriptures as the Old and New Testament in English... We are not merely labeling the two parts of the modern Bible. We are tapping into the very essence of what they are as covenant documents and what they document. God's saving work within a covenant community. If scripture is therefore the inspired writings received as divinely authoritative and tended by God to function as covenantal documents, then there is by definition a boundary as to what is and what is not included. Covenant documentation is not open-ended. The covenant principle carries with it the the exception, indeed the requirement, that there be a clear delimitation as to what is intended to be part of that documentation. In other words, again, another way, a more academic way of saying, Scripture defines itself. Scripture defines defines itself. Where did we get these 66 books? Over a course of time, as the church used the books that were supposedly the Word of God, these words, these books, stood out above all others and had all the divine characteristics of God's Word, and therefore they are what we call the Scriptures or the canon. All of that to say that Scripture is self, self-authenticating. Scripture is self-authenticating. When you read the words of God, you know it's the words of God. It cannot be. You cannot say, no man came up with this. This are, these are the words of God. It's an understanding of Scripture. Let's look at our text for today now. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living. Living. Never heard anybody say that about the works of Shakespeare are living. The works of, well, whoever wrote the Harry Potter, Rowling or whatever, you don't say they're living. They have something. Just by definition, the Word of God is living. There's something different about it. It's alive. It has life within itself. The word living is zao. It means live, to be alive. There's something in them. As as throughout time, as the church fathers put together the Scriptures under the inspiration of God, that was a process also under the inspiration of God, that they realized that these words of God are alive. They're different 
than other words. They have life in and of themselves. Remember what John wrote in the beginning of his, of his, his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing was made. <clears throat> and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, za'au, and the life was the light of men. Jesus asked the Word of God as life in and of Himself. In the Scriptures, as God's words have life in and of themselves. They stand above all other words because they're God's word. Not only are they living, it says, the word of the Lord, of, the word of God is living and active, it says. Active. Energies. Of course, we would know that word is energy. It means effective, able to bring about God's word when it goes forth it has work it does work it accomplishes something it accomplishes its intended purpose as the prophet Isaiah says about the words of God in Isaiah 55:11 so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is active. God's word accomplishes exactly what it is supposed to accomplish. What is the word of God to accomplish for us? It's the words of God. And God has a message for humanity. God has a message for the, community, the covenant community. What is it? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so therefore, the word of God cannot be absent from evangelism. It's impo- can't be. You know, people tell, oh, I evangelized. Oh, I shared my story. I handed a tract to somebody. You did not evangelize. You maybe began a process of. But to evangelize means to share the word of God, to tell people the words of God. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is the word of God that goes to people and saves people people's souls. Listen to what James tells us in James 1.21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing is by the word of God. God's word goes out. The Holy Spirit applies it to a person. They gives them the ability to understand and apply the word of God, to turn their heart, to repent, and come to the Lord Jesus Christ in true saving faith. That's what it does. It's able to save your soul. God saves, we know. It's not scripture. You know what I'm saying. It's able to save your soul because it's the word of God. It's the word and the work of God. It's also the scriptures are what make us wise for salvation. To understand salvation. To apply salvation. To live out the words of God. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this. And from childhood, 
Timothy, from childhood, how you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is scripture, which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's active. It goes forth. It accomplishes its purposes. Its purpose is to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the scriptures instruct us how to live a life pleasing to God. To make us wise for salvation. The word of God, Hebrews tells us, is living and active. Listen to what else it says. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intents of the intentions of the heart. Boy, that's a lot to say. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Within the Old Testament, there's not many references to the two-edged sword. There's a couple in Isaiah, I think one in Jeremiah. I could be wrong about the Jeremiah. You can fact check me later and let me know my error. But certainly, Paul in Ephesians, in talking about the armor of God, equates the word of God with a two-edged sword. The writer is using imagery clearly that this audience would be well acquainted with. The Roman two-edged sword. One of the most prolific weapons of, of warfare, a short sword, two-sided, extremely sharp. They would keep close and they'd come in and they could make a series of quick, piercing kills. He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word is alive and active. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit. It breaks a person down. It cuts right to the heart of the issue. Just It's clean and it's sharp. It does its job. There's a saying, if you worked in construction, as I've worked in construction, or if you're a butcher... There's a saying that says a dull knife is a dangerous knife. That is so true. I can't tell you how many times that I didn't change a razor blade, and I said, I'm just going to use it. I worked harder. The thing slips, but I can tell you, it may not be cutting the whatever I'm trying to cut, but it can sure cut your hand open. Um, I've been in hospital a few times for stitches with that. I say that. It's the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. If a dull blade physically is a dangerous blade, I'm going to tell you that bad theology is even worse. To take the word of God and distort it. Not let it do its work as God says. To change the words of God really is to elevate yourself to the place of God. I'm God. I know better than God who wrote these words. It's a dangerous. Bad theology is destroying the churches within America. It's not telling people to stand firm, therefore, with the armor of God and having the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It tells you to be a good boy, be a good girl. 
Don't worry, God only has the best for you. He loves you and he has a, he, you know, every day is a Friday. It's your best life now. Don't buy that garbage. Buy the word of God. Let it have its work in you. Let it do its work in you. Let it divide your soul and your spirit. He says it's just like a sword or a sharp knife which can divide joints and marrow. He says it's the word of God which discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's what happens to people when they hear the word of God. When they're witnessed to. God's word pierces right in, cuts right to the chase, and it exposes the thoughts and the tents of their hearts. And as they see their wickedness, they see that they're against the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't just put the sword, I got you. God's sword opens a way out, leads them to a place of repentance. It exposes your heart. All of this to say that God's word is sufficient. Sufficient. Nothing to add to it. You can't take anything away from it. It is sufficient in and of itself. Listen again to what Paul said to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word complete is artios, means proficient. Proficient. Are you proficient in God's word? Are you striving to be? Proficient in God's word? Does it mean everybody's got to be a, a super theologian? No. Not everybody's going to be one. Not everybody maybe even, quite frankly, has the ability to mentally be that, to think on the higher critical levels. And that's okay. Because God's word is perspicuous. It speaks to the lowest and to the highest of mental abilities. It pierces down to everybody. But if you study to show yourself a workman approved by God, equipped for every good work, the scripture is breathed out by God. Are we striving to be proficient in the word of God? Again, the London Baptist Confession of Faith writes this of the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scripture is the only, only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, Yet they are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times, I love that word, and diverse manners, to reveal Himself and to declare His will unto His church, 
and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church. Listen to this. This is, this is what protects us. This is the comfort of the church. The word of God is the comfort of the church. And it's the protection of the church against the corruption of the flesh, of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writings which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary. Thus, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. In other words, God speaks now only through his word. If you listen to those charlatans, and I hope you don't, on TBN or sometimes on the radio, will tell you that I got a word from the Lord. No, you did not get a word from the Lord. If by word of the Lord you mean that God showed me within his words what the meaning is, okay, I can go with that. God gave me some new thing. No, God gave you no new thing because there is no new thing. It's God's word. It always has been and it always will be. Even in heaven, this won't change. It's the word of God. This is all that we need. It is sufficient. It is all of those things. Because Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. Again, John writing this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the Word of God. When Jesus returns, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, Revelation 19, 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is... Back online? There we go. All right. So let's go back a little bit for the sake of the video. Jesus is the Word of God, John 1, 1 to 3, and Revelation 19, 13. Jesus is the Word of God, and Scripture points us to one person and one person, Jesus Christ. Scripture points us to Jesus. Jesus, in speaking with the Pharisees, told them this in John 5, 46. If you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. All that Moses wrote, he says, is about me. It's all about me. Jesus is the only person that can actually be able to say that. It's all about me. How often do we say it's all about me? 
or act like it's all about me. No, it's all about Jesus. Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're lamenting the things that have happened and talking about what the events that had occurred of his death and his resurrection. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. All of the Old Testament, he says, speaks about me. All of the New Testament speaks about Jesus Christ. The scripture is one story about one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul succinctly writes to the church in Corinth, and he says this, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. How? In accordance with the Scriptures. What Scriptures is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament because that's all he had. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's one story about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we would talk about it. We have in the past, and we'll probably will again, that it's one story. And to look at the Bible through the lens of Genesis 3.15, of a promised seed, and you could trace the promised seed throughout the kings and the prophets and all of those things up to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. It's one story. One story about one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is living, it is active, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is infallible, it is inerrant, it is the only source of life for us as believers. And the question would be, what will you do with this book? What will you do with this book? There's lots of books in the world. Ecclesiastes tells us this, in Ecclesiastes 12.12, of making many books there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of flesh. I like that for my professors in college. This is just wearying. Of many books there's no end. Oh, man, you go, listen, there's whole superstores dedicated to books, Barnes and Nobles or anything else. Books and books and books and books and books and books. But there's only one book that matters. Ultimately, that matters. Are there books that are written about this book? Absolutely. Have I recommended books about the book? Yes. They're good helps. But what are we going to do with this book? Are we going to be people who look at the book as a tool to help us be a good boy or good girl? Make it through life and hope that, uh, you know, we hit the lottery in the end, so to speak? Are we ones who care deeply about the Word of God, maybe? Know all the terms and have all the theology, but it never actually makes it to our heart? 
My old pastor, Pastor Mike Braun, who was, what a theologian. I mean, this guy was, he can hold it with MacArthur and the rest of them, hands down. And I think it was his wife, Susan, told a story about he was in college and he had a, if I said his name, I think I've told the story before, very famous theologian. And he was struggling in his class. And he just said, chin up, Mr. Braun, chin up, Braun, chin up. Don't, don't get lost in this. Like, not offering any compassion or help. And he went back to his wife, and his wife said to him, you think he's ever actually led anybody to the Lord? You think he's actually ever? Just he had all the knowledge, but he, you know, and that might, he might be, I'm not saying he's not in heaven, but the idea that you can be so knowledgeable about God's word and miss everything because it's nothing but academic to you. Don't let it become an academic book to you. The Bible says this. Paul says about people in the world in 2 Timothy 3, 7, they're always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Don't let the Bible become that to you because it can be. You can be always learning and never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. And you will stand one day before the Lord Jesus Christ, self-deceived, thinking you will gain entrance into heaven. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. What are you going to do with the book? The book tells us what to do with the book. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best, study, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, that is cutting, the word of truth. Are you striving to be that? Rightly dividing the word of truth. So it's not be ashamed before God. then I would ask you, how are you practically doing that? Are you striving to study on your own outside of the community of believers? That's good. But if that's all you're doing, I'd say that's not good. And here would be my plea to you, which I make often. Why do you not come to Bible study? with the community to study the Word of God? If we really believe this is the most important book, if this book has life in and of itself, that it is the only infallible rule of life and salvation that we have, why are we not meeting in greater numbers as a body to study the Word of God together? What about community groups where we go over what we're learning here today? I understand we can't be at everything. Please don't get me wrong. What about your kids attending youth group? What about coming to Sunday school where we study the Word of God? What about Kids for Truth where our little ones study the Word of God? Where are we? I would ask you to ask the Lord, what would you have me do? God, do you want me to? Do we have time for you know, it's e- I, I, I know it's easy to, to waste time. I can waste a lot of time. 
I, 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 I'll confess my sins here. Um, don't worry, they're not bad. Um, well, it's bad, but one night I woke up, I just couldn't sleep. And so what did I do with my time? I wasted it. I watched like 10 episodes of The Blacklist when I should have been reading the Word of God, which had more value. The Word of God. What are we doing? This is convicting to me, and I hope it is to you. And I don't mean to beat you up, church. But if we're God's children, we're God's covenant community, if we really see that the end is drawing near, if we're really seeing that we're being called to account, if we really see that persecution is on the rise for Christians, just go and look at that poor kid in Wisconsin who was reading Scripture in a microphone and they attacked him and took his Bible and ripped it up on him. That just happened last week. That's nothing compared to what's happening to believers in Saudi Arabia, Iran, North Korea, China, and other places. They're just being killed. But if we're not taking this book serious, that when temptation comes, if we're not implanting it in ourselves, which is able to make us wise for salvation, which is able to keep you from falling, so when the day of temptation comes, guess what happens? We're going to fall. When the day comes in which we're called to stand for our faith, to give a yes or a no to the Lord Jesus Christ, or as the old Roman emperors go, up or down, life or death, that we're going to go this. We're going to go, oh, I don't know who he is. We're not going to stand. We're going to abandon the one who gave himself for us. This is all the more important today, I believe. It was just as important for Peter and Paul and the rest of them. It's just as important for us today. It is the only source that we have to live a Christian life. As we go into God's word, as we study God's word, as we understand the value of God's word, and as the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds and our hearts and gives us the revelation of God's word, and it helps us to endure and to persevere and to do the will of God, In the end, we will be the ones who stand. We will be the ones who will be welcomed into his kingdom. If we neglect this, we neglect this now. We can't make up time. Now. Now is the appointed time. Now. So I would would ask you and encourage you. Be all the more with the community as we study God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is life. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that it is the only infallible rule of life within the covenant community. And Lord, help us to value your word. Help us to love your word. Help us to desire your word more than gold, more than honey. Lord, help us Oh, Lord, help us to rightly divide your word. To not compromise, to not give sway to culture or anything else, but to stand on your word, to stand firmly on your word, which is our solid rock, which is our anchor for our soul, so that we would please our master. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
and amen. Let's stand, let's close in a song. I'm going to ask you to turn to number 406 in your hymnals as we sing about the wonderful words of life. 406, wonderful words of life. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words. Wonderful words of life, beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Christ the blessed one gives to all, wonderful words of life. Sinnerless to the loving call, wonderful words of life. So freely given, wooing us to heaven. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Sweetly echo the gospel call. God bless you all.